Good evening. Uh, we are continuing the story uh, in Genesis. We're on page 53 in the Church Bibles, Genesis 47, and starting at verse 13. So chapter 47, starting at verse 13. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain that they were buying, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is all gone. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep and goats, their cattle and donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, We cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes, we and our land as well, by us and our land in exchange for food? And we, with our land, will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. However, he did not buy the land of the priests because they received a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and, and had food enough from the allowance Pharaoh gave them. That is why they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, Now that I have brought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed so that you can plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four-fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favour in the eyes of our Lord. We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. So Joseph established it as a law concerning land in Egypt, still in force today, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not become Pharaoh's. Now, the Israelites settled in Egypt in the, in the region of Goshen, they acquired property there, and they were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favour in your eyes, 
Put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me there where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Let's pray. Father, it's a bit of a strange passage. It seems to be more about fiscal policy than anything else. But we just pray that as we look at it now that you will speak to us and your spirit will show new truths in your word to us. Amen. Here's a, a, a picture most people around here will be familiar with, uh, I guess. Uh, it's, a, it's a picture of contrasts, isn't it? Just down the beach. You can look at the West Pier, and it's just slowly falling apart. Uh, we've turned that into a virtue here, haven't we? But it's just decaying and disintegrating and dead. And then we've got the Palace Pier, the Palace of Fun, full of life, uh, full of uh, enjoyment, and lots going on there. A real contrast between a life of, uh, of well, a lively life, if you like, and a life of decay. And that sort of contrast lies in Genesis chapter 47. Uh, if you've closed your Bibles, you might want to open them up, page 53. Keep an eye on what's going on uh, on, on an app if you've got it on your phone. And, and the first contrast that's in this story that really strikes us, I think, is the difference between what happens to God's family, Jacob's family, if you like, and what is happening to the people of Egypt. And it came over pretty clearly, didn't it? One family is looked after in every way, and the other one is reduced to, to poverty and to slavery. And we're going to look at that a little bit more. But, you know, that is a really simple picture and a very clear picture of the difference there is in our lives if we choose to follow the Lord Jesus, if we put our trust in God. One is a life of fruitfulness and one is a life of decay and death. And you imagine you were the first people hearing this story. The first folk who heard this story would have been the folk living in Goshen, or Goshen, never know which one it is. And for actually three, four hundred years, this was the end of the Bible. No Old Testament, no Psalms, no prophets, no New Testament, no letters. This is where the story stops. We're going to, we've got a couple more chapters of stuff going on, but effectively the narrative ends here. This is the last we will hear of the Egyptians, Egyptians for a few hundred years. And so the people of Israel are left with this image to sustain them. For hundreds of years, God provides and cares for his people. And that story's been building, hasn't it? We saw it in, in chapter 46, uh, and then chapter 47, verse 6, 
uh, we heard the people were given the best land in Egypt, uh, in, in Goshen, uh, and there they are to live. And then verse 12 here, Joseph provides for them there as well. Um, have we got a picture of Goshen? There we are. That's Goshen now, apparently. So it's sort of damp and got dates and all sorts of good things. But that's the people of Israel. The focus here is on slightly different, isn't it? Did you notice the fourth word? Verse 13, as our reading started, the fourth word, however. Something different is going on with the Egyptians. Because, of course, we're working out the story of, uh, of Pharaoh's dreams, aren't we? Uh, we? We've had the years of plenty. Uh, now we're into the lean cow years. And we're probably towards the end of the famine period. People are getting desperate. And did you notice, as, as Lizzie read early on, there's a sort of kind of, um, bit of an odd change. So verse 13, verse 14, verse 15, all explicitly say it's repeated that the famine doesn't just affect Egypt. It affects Canaan as well. Now, well, you get, by the time you get to verse 30, it's quite clear Canaan is where Jacob wants to go back to be buried. Canaan is actually the land of the promise. It's where people, figuratively, are in the right relationship with God. That's the whole point of the promised land. It's, it's that sort of image of being right with God. But isn't it interesting that even there, there is famine? It's, it's perhaps just a, a little reminder that even as God's children, we do go through hard times. Nick was talking about that uh, this morning, wasn't, it? wasn't he? There's no, there's no promise for the Christian that life is always going to be physically like living in Goshen. People were having a hard time. But that's a little bit of an aside because get to verse 15... Joseph's selling the grain to the people of Egypt and Canaan. But look what happens next. Who comes begging Joseph for help? Suddenly, the Canaanites are nowhere to be seen. They leave the story. The people who have to come to Joseph, who are desperate, are the folk of Egypt. And what you see as you work through the narrative with these people of Egypt is, is effectively total loss for folk who don't follow the law. That's the kind of big message we're getting here, total loss for those who don't follow the Lord. I mean, I am getting increasingly bad at losing things. Uh, glad my wife's here, found her. But, you know, keys, does anybody else have trouble with keyless go in their car? just drives me nuts. You always used to know where your key was in the car. It was dangling from the station. Now it could be anywhere. I'm, I've worked out I'm going to spend a day of the rest of my life looking for my car keys in the car. Uh, dreadful at losing little things like that. It's very frustrating. But what we're looking at here isn't some sort of minor inconvenience, isn't it? What the Egyptians are experiencing is losing everything. So look at verse 15, their money's gone. Verse 17, their livestock's gone. 
And then, of course, there's worse to come. Because next year, they're back again. Verse 19, at that point, they're offering their land. They can't live without their land. So then they offer themselves as bond servants. They've lost even their freedom. And of course, while that is happening, God's family are flourishing and living in freedom. Psalm 34 says, Surely God is good to Israel. Those who are not in his family experience loss and slavery, but the promise is that God is good to those who are faithful. Now the question is, that's all fine and dandy, but what does that actually mean for you and me? It's all very well saying we're free and blessed, but it often doesn't feel like that, does it? Um, actually, Psalm 34 goes on. It's a wonderful psalm. And the psalmist says, look, I can see the arrogant are rich and carefree. So we look around and we say, well, I'm told I'm free, but actually I can see other people who seem to be getting on fine. I'm not free of worry. I'm not free of disease. So in what way am I really free? And it's a bit of a hot topic at the moment, isn't it? Freedom. If you're the most overpaid sports commentator in the world, are you free to slag off your employer? That may be a slightly biased way of putting it, but that's one aspect of freedom. At the other end of the spectrum, are children free to decide to choose what sort of toilet they go into? I mean, freedom is a, is a big and contentious and confusing thing. But freedom for Christians and freedom in the Bible, although it might touch on those areas of whether we're free to worship, whether we're free to think, whether we're free to say things, is essentially talking about freedom from sin. And we don't talk about that very much. We don't like talking about freedom from sin. We like talking about freedom of other things. We like talking about God forgiving our mistakes and our failures, and we like to use nice, inclusive, gentle language like that. But the Bible doesn't. The Bible doesn't talk about forgiving mistakes and first failures. It talks, plain and simple, about sin. That's our sort of inbuilt attitude that makes even the best of our thoughts and the best of the things we do Tainted, tainted often by pride and selfishness. Dorothy Sayers, great Christian writer from a few years back, described it, sin is a deep interior dislocation of the soul. It's a desire to keep control of your life. And it's that desire, that taint, that the Bible says puts us in bondage to the devil. It's a terribly familiar verse we'll all have heard, the wages the sin of death, Romans 6.23. And the image there is, imagine gladiators fighting in the arena and they're being forced to earn their own death, aren't they? It's probably quite exciting being a gladiator at, at times. Some of them were, were celebrities. They might feel free, but actually many of them are just doomed. They're earning their way to their death. 
Jesus says, truly I say to you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And that's the picture we're getting in this passage of Genesis. The Egyptians facing total loss and servitude. And a completely different picture for God's children. Where the spirit of God is, there is freedom, says Paul. Richard Sibbs, who has got some very strange headgear, uh, writing in 1639. It's quite an interesting quote if you think this was written just before the Civil War. Um, Charles I and all of that. But look what he says. Outside of Christ, we are all slaves. The best of us are slaves. But in Christ, the lowest of all is a free man or woman and a king. It's a wonderful quote, isn't it? The lowest of all is a free man and a king. Well, so far, so good. But we're talking about a bunch of Israelites, 1700 BC or whatever. How does this kind of apply to me now? How does this work out in practice? How do, I, how do I experience that freedom, if you like? And I think now we can cheat and we can sort of fast forward to the New Testament and we can see a completely different contrast in this story. And this time, the contrast very much focuses on Joseph. And there's another truth that works through as you look at that contrast about how we enter into that blessing, how we enter into that freedom. Uh, And and remember the idea that we've talked about before, that Joseph, in some sort of way, foreshadows Jesus. And, And keeping that in mind, just have another look at what is happening here. See verse 15? The people come to Joseph and ask for food. Now, this isn't just popping into Lidl. This isn't just going to the back for coffee afterwards and asking for a biscuit. This was a matter of life and death. And that gets emphasized time and again as we go through this. So verse 13, the famine was severe, it says. The people are wasting the way. The people are buying grain to keep them alive, aren't they? And then more explicit, verse 15, give us food, they say. Why should we die before your eyes. Verse 19, we get it again. Give us seed so that we may live and not die. You see, they have a choice. They have a choice. They can try and get by on their own resources and they're going to die. Or they turn to Joseph and live. And Jesus was asked a very similar question by the crowds uh, once in Galilee. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread. Give us a bread that gives life. And many of you will know the answer that's coming. What does Jesus say? He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. Never go hungry. It's not just a quick fix. Look at what happens with Joseph. Verse 17, it says, he brought them through that year. There's a deliberate build-up seems to be happening in this story. Verse 17, they've given enough bread to get them through. 
But at verse 23, we've moved on. He gives them seed that will last forever. And he tells them they're to, to plant, they're to plant the ground. Um, it sounds like the famine's coming towards an end, doesn't it? If they're going to sow for the future, they're going to sow for next year and to provide food for their children. You see, initially it was just a quick fix, but they've now got to the point where they've surrendered everything. And now they have a lifetime of food. They have bread for life. So can you see that there's a sort of process here, isn't it? Verse 18, they acknowledge that Joseph knows everything. And then there's this progression of parting with the money, parting with the livestock, parting with their land, parting with their freedom, their very selves. They seem to have to go down and down and down until they get to the point that they have to surrender totally to the Lord before they can know total security. And that is a lesson, we won't go there yet, we have to learn for ourselves, isn't it? The famous for him, old hymn, all to Jesus I surrender, Lord, I give myself to thee, fill me with thy love and power, let thy blessing fall on me. That was a verse that influenced Billy Graham tremendously, apparently. And one of the things about it, of course, is that for us as Christians, we surrender to the Lord, but we have to keep on doing it, don't we? We have to keep going back. We keep singing those words, don't we? Because we don't want to surrender. It's difficult. And yet that is what we are called to do. We live a life of total surrender to a Lord who loves us and like Joseph here, knows everything about us. Now you might not fancy that, especially if you're not a Christian. The idea of sort of total surrender doesn't sound very nice, does it? So is there a plan B? Well, we were talking about contrast earlier, weren't we? And saying, well, where's the contrast with Joseph in this passage? And did you notice there are two references to people who don't get involved with this process at all? Verse 22, the priests receive an allowance from Pharaoh. And the same in verse 26, the priests are mentioned again. And commentators say, oh, well, Moses got this wrong, or whoever wrote it down got it wrong, because actually it wasn't just the priests, uh, it was the, uh, the soldiers as well uh, got a sort of tax-free allowance. Which probably makes the fact that the priests are mentioned even more significant. And I think the significance of the priests is that they are totally unimportant. Joseph offers some bread, the priests don't have a scooby, do they? Joseph is the source of life, not the priests. I mean, religion in Egypt was huge. It was an intellectual powerhouse. There was learning, there, were, there was literature. Catherine and I were trying to work out whether the little hieroglyphics are part of Egyptian literature or just some sort of clever thing that Stephen's made up to go on the slides as we've been reading this. But the fact is, none of that stuff Gave the people life, did it? Those other religions don't give life. Only 
Jesus can. And, and the point of all this? Well, verse 28, the story comes back to Jacob. We're going to be with Jacob and the family for the rest of Genesis, really. Uh, but at this point, Jacob's gone through a long pilgrimage. That's the phrase he's learned. And he's learned, perhaps at last, to simply trust in God for his future. Because the chapter ends with Jacob looking forward to resting in the land of promise. And in, and in a strange sort of move, you see that he, he puts himself in the, under the power, under the lordship of Joseph. And Hebrews 11 tells us that at this point, Jacob worshipped in faith. You know, Jacob had been broken in so many ways. Jacob seems to have had to learn himself to surrender and understand and, and trust the Lord. And now he seems at last to know where he's going. And in faith, he knows God's blessing. He knew God's promise. Perhaps for the first time in his life, verse 31, he knew God's peace as he worshipped. So the abiding memory, I think, for folk reading this passage was that God offers us all good things and a secure future for those who trust him. Perhaps, they say, the biggest mistake in the Second World War was the fact that the Allied High Command insisted on the Axis powers' unconditional surrender. And they say that one decision cost countless numbers of lives and dragged on the war. There was no good reason for the Axis to surrender. Unconditional surrender was too frightening. Well, the fact is the opposite is true, isn't it, with the Lord Jesus. Whoever we are, wherever we've been, whatever our background... We can't hide from our Lord the fact that the famine is too severe for us. We cannot save ourselves, can we? We have to, with the help of the Spirit, every day, surrender to him unconditionally. And shortly, we're coming up to a time of communion. And there can be no better time than that to surrender to the Lord.